0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of Christ, Part 1. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.
1: Today, we begin a new locus or theme in our survey of Christian doctrine. We first began many months ago talking about the doctrine of revelation, And By that we don't mean the biblical book by that name but rather how God reveals himself uh, to humanity both generally in nature and conscience and specially in his word, Jesus Christ, and in Scripture. Then we spent a long time on that major topic of the doctrine of God, uh, studying the attributes of God, uh, taking an excursus on natural theology of arguments for God's existence, um, and then looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, and finally the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Today we have the exciting opportunity to begin a new locus and to discuss the doctrine of Christ. and This usually goes by the name Christology. Christology is going to be the theology or the study of Christ. And as we'll see, there are two major aspects to Christology. One will be the person of Christ, and the other will be the work of Christ. And we'll look at each of these two areas together. The person of Christ seeks to answer the question: who is Jesus Christ? The work of Of Christ tries to answer the question, what did he do? Now, the person of Christ is preoccupied principally with the doctrine of the incarnation, and the work of Christ is principally occupied with the doctrine of the atonement. And so, over the coming months, we'll be talking about these two important Christian doctrines. And I think, as we all know, the doctrines of the incarnation. And atonement are absolutely central to Christian theism. Up until now we have been talking about the doctrine of God and although we did get into the Trinity and the Holy Spirit, which are uniquely Christian, for the most part the doctrine of God was a generic monotheism. But when it comes to Christ, the person and work of Christ, the doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement lie at the very heart of Christian Theology. And so this is a very important and exciting uh, locus that we will now um, broach today. So we want to begin by talking about the person of Christ and the doctrine of the incarnation. And we want first to say something about the scriptural data concerning the person of Christ. The New Testament affirms both the deity and the the humanity of Jesus Christ. With respect to the deity of Christ I am not going to rehearse again all of the scriptural teaching pertinent to the divinity of Christ. We will simply refer you back to our discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity where you will remember we examined at some length the New Testament witness to the deity of Christ. And therefore, his being a member of the Trinity. Let me simply read one summary statement from the New Testament that nicely captures this truth of the deity of Christ. And this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross." Here we have a poignant statement of the incarnation of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he was equal with God. Nevertheless, he humbled himself and took on human form and eventually gave his life for us. Now, As this already suggests, the scripture affirms, therefore, the true humanity of Christ as well as his true deity. As a human being, Jesus experienced all of the um, finite uh, limitations that we experience as human people. For example, he was physically born. Uh, this is obvious, but we'll read some scripture to attest to this fact, Luke chapter 2 verses 7 and 11. Luke chapter 2, and verses 7 and 11. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And then in verse 11, the angel proclaims For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So, Jesus experienced a human birth. Though virginally conceived, his birth was perfectly ordinary. He also experienced temptation to sin, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Temptation to sin, described in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. So he experienced temptations as we do. He also experienced the full range of physical and mental limitations that we experience. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. And Jesus increased. In wisdom, and in stature, in favor with God and man. Here the boy Jesus is said to have increased in both his intellectual abilities and in his physical body. Look also at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2. This was after his temptation, or or during it I guess, and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. So Jesus experienced hunger from being deprived of food. John chapter 4 and verse 6. John chapter 4 and verse 6. This is the story of his encounter with the woman at the well. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was, With his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Here Jesus is said to have been tired. Uh, His body experienced fatigue and, as we see from the story, thirst as well as hunger, as he asked the woman for a drink. Mark chapter four and verse thirty-eight. Mark chapter four and verse thirty-eight. This is the story of the stilling of the storm. Um, and The great storm arose on the Lake of Galilee, and in verse 38 of Mark 4 it says, But Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care if we perish? Here the boat is being swamped by these waves Beating it and tossing it till it's it's ready to capsize, and Jesus is so exhausted, so fatigued that he's sleeping through this thing, uh, again showing his physical limitations. Uh, finally, uh, Mark chapter thirteen and verse thirty-two, Mark thirteen and verse thirty-two, mental limitations as well as physical are indicated here. Part of his Olivet Discourse on the End Times he says, But of that day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Here Jesus says that he does not know the date of his return, so that he experienced both physical and mental limitations. Moreover, Jesus was tortured. And executed Um, Luke chapter 23 and verses 33 and 46. Luke chapter 23 and verses 33 and 46. And when they came to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus crying with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus experienced during his passion the suffering of horrible torture uh, and finally crucifixion and death. Moreover, Jesus experienced through what he suffered during his life moral growth. This surprising truth is um, declared in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 to 10. Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here it says Jesus was morally perfected through his sufferings. Now We who believe in the deity of Christ and have entrusted our lives from him may feel uncomfortable with these verses that show the finitude and physical and mental limitations of Jesus and the way in which he grew during his lifetime. The the affirmation of the humanity of Jesus may make us squirm um, in discomfort. But in fact, the affirmation that Jesus was truly human is essential to Christian doctrine. Indeed, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, we're told that if you do not affirm the true humanity of Christ, you are a heretic. So that this is essential to the doctrine of the person of Christ, just as much as his deity. 1 John 4, verses 1 to 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus, is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it was coming, and now it is in the world already. So here John emphasizes that it is essential to the doctrine of Christ to affirm that he has come in the flesh, uh, the true humanity of Jesus. and This is not a mere appearance as the Uh, heretics claimed this is a real and genuine incarnation of Christ in human flesh. So essential to the doctrine of the person of Christ is the affirmation of both his true deity as well as his true humanity. Is there any question about any of that biblical material? Steve? I guess it's not really a question. I was gonna the last statement about you must believe he came in the flesh. Yes. I think that's important because you need to have trust in him. And if you don't believe he came in the flesh, then you when you see him at his appearing, you will not have the faith to be transformed into self selfsame so, man. You really won't believe. Mm-hmm. I think that it's especially important when it gets to the work of Christ. If Christ incarnation was merely illusory, something that was mere appearance, then that makes nonsense of the atonement of the sufferings of Christ and his um, saving us and redeeming us from sin. It would be merely illusory. So you can see why the affirmation of of the humanity of Christ would be essential as well as his deity. Any other comment? Yes, Steve. I'm not sure if, how important this is, but do we know whether Mary Jesus was born of an egg <clears throat> of Mary that then grew into Jesus, or like in vitro fertilization was yeah. a fertilized S- egg? Steve is raising a very interesting question, which perhaps we can talk about more when we come to the um, virgin conception of Jesus. He's, he's wanting to know, did Mary... Contribute any genetic material to Jesus? Uh, Or was it wholly miraculous, Um, simply uh, the production of this fertilized egg within Mary's womb? Uh, And I don't think that biblically there's any way to prove it one way or the other, because in either case it could be truly human. A truly human um, being was. Produced in Mary's uh, womb. Um, or you could say that God contributed the part, the genetic material would make this a male child rather than a female child, but that Mary contributed uh, her chromosomes to this as well. And um, I, I don't think that biblically there's one way to sh- prove it rather than the other, but theologians have addressed this question. It's a very interesting question about. Um, the virginal conception, and I do not think that how you answer it need affect your affirmation of the true humanity of Christ, yes, Cindy.
0: just to comment, I mean Jesus did refer to his brothers, uh, and I mean he yes, he could be taken either stepbrothers or whatever, but to me, that might weigh a little bit on the idea yeah. of being fully human in the sense that there was genetic material right, of okay. a human so what being. What
1: Cindy is saying were, is were these brothers of Jesus his brothers not just in the sense that they were members of the same family, which is clear, but that they were actually genetically similar to Jesus. They shared their mother's genetic material. That would make him even more intimately connected to his brothers and his sisters as well. Okay, Bruce, I hope we haven't gone off on a tangent here. Well, hopefully I won't take it too far, but uh, the Scripture says he's he has the seed of David. So I see the miraculous in that he averted the curse on the kings by being born of spiritually from, from above, but also uh, fulfilled the prophecy that he would be of the line and seed of David by... By sharing that physicality. Right. Now, this is a good question that Bruce is raising, too, in terms of being part of the line of David, the Messianic line. But this has to do with whether or not this is to be traced through Mary or through Joseph legally as his father. Joseph was legally his father and part of the royal lineage. Um, Or is this in virtue of being from... Mary, uh, that would be part of the conversation here as well. Taiwan.
0: Just as Jesus grew physically, he probably also grew in his realization who he is. Uh, because Hebrew 5.5 5 says, Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. You are a priest forever. And Hebrew <clears> 10.7, <throat> um, he says, uh, he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. And 10.10, um, 10, Hebrew 10.10 10 says, by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it looks like um, this understanding of who he is also grew uh, in time. It didn't just come in as he was born and
1: he. Yes, I, I think Taiwan is making a very good point. We know that by the time... Of his baptism by John, he had a clear sense of his vocation and identity uh, to embark on a public ministry. But even earlier, when he's 12 years old and visits the temple with his parents and stays behind, uh, and they search frantically for them. When they finally find them, him, he says, "Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business?" And even there, early in Jesus' life, you have some uh, intimation at least that he had a special consciousness of his relationship with God as his father. But how full it is, we don't know. But I think that you're quite right in saying that this would be something that would naturally uh, dawn on him and grow uh, as he grows from a little infant, a normal little baby, to a Jewish boy, uh, and finally to adulthood. Now, this causes special problems for understanding the incarnation, doesn't it? Because as God, as the second person of the Trinity, he's omniscient. So, how does he not already know these things? We'll be talking about that question in this section. Any other discussion at this point about the scriptural material? Good. Now, let's reflect a bit on this. How can Jesus? be truly God and truly man. If anything looks like a contradiction, surely this is it. Uh, Jesus seems to be the proverbial round square um, or married bachelor. How can he be both creator and creature, both infinite and finite? How do we unite in a single person omniscience and ignorance, omnipotence and weakness? moral perfection and moral perfectibility. The attributes of deity which he must have possessed as the second person of the Trinity seem to drive out the attributes of humanity so that it seems to be a logical contradiction to affirm with the historic Christian church that Jesus is truly God and truly man in the language of the uh, classical creeds, vera Deus, vera homo – truly God and truly man. Well, in order to get at this question let's do a historical survey of reflection uh, by great church fathers and uh, thinkers on the doctrine of the person of Christ. As a result of the Trinitarian controversies which culminated with the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople in 381, a new chapter in intellectual church history opened. and I am referring to the Christological controversies of the 4th through the 7th Centuries. So, following the Trinitarian controversies came these Christological controversies. And the central question that was addressed by the Church Fathers was how we should understand the affirmation that Jesus Christ is both truly human and truly divine. And there emerged among the Church Fathers two broad schools of Thinking about Christology, um, often labeled Alexandrian um, versus Antiochian Christology because of the geographical centers of these schools of thought. But I think these are perhaps best seen as um, a conflict between what could be called monophysite and diophysite Christology. The Greek word uh, "phusis." means nature. Mono obviously means one, and so monophysites would affirm that there is in the incarnate Christ one nature, a kind of combination of deity and humanity, whereas the diophysites affirm that there are in the incarnate Christ two complete natures. Now The presupposition of both schools was that members of natural kinds of things have natures or essential properties which make the things what they are. Thus, a horse has a horse nature, and that distinguishes it from, say, a cat, which has a feline nature. Now, by the same token, there is therefore such a thing as human nature, and this differs from the divine nature. So what is human nature? Well, According to the great Greek philosopher Aristotle the nature of humanity is that man is a rational animal. The nature of man is to be a rational animal. So on Aristotle's view being truly human involves having both a physical body, but also an intellectual soul. To be a rational animal is to be a human being, possessed of a physical body and an intellectual or rational soul. And the church fathers seem to have accepted Aristotle's view of what human nature is. Now at the same time, they also believed that God has a nature, that God possesses certain essential attributes such as omnipotence, omniscience, eternity, moral perfection, and so forth. And The question that they faced was how do we understand the incarnation of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity? Logos, you'll recall, is the Greek word for reason or word. And The challenge was how do we understand the incarnation of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity? The church fathers were unanimous in thinking that the incarnation was not a matter of the Logos' divesting himself of certain attributes of divinity in order to turn himself into a human being. That sort of conception would be more akin to Greco-Roman pagan ideas. Uh, In Greco-Roman mythology, for example, Zeus is said to have turned himself into a bull or turned himself into a swan. And The notion of the incarnation in Christian thinking is not that the second person of the Trinity somehow turned himself into a human being. Doing so would mean that he's thereby ceased to be God. And the Christian affirmation is that Jesus is both God and man simultaneously. So in the incarnation, the Logos did not abandon or lay aside his divine nature. And that meant that the incarnation could only be conceived as the Logos' acquiring an additional nature to the nature that he already possessed as God. So that the incarnation for the church fathers was not a matter of subtraction but of addition. It is not that the Logos subtracted some of his divine attributes in order to turn himself into a human being. It was rather that the Logos, being fully God, fully divine, acquired, in addition to his divine nature, a human nature as well. And the question was how this acquisition of a human nature by the Logos is to be understood. Advocates of a Monophysite Christology, or a one nature Christology, held that after the Incarnation, the Logos possessed a single divine human nature. A kind of mixture of divinity and humanity together. Some of them understood the incarnation to be a matter of the Logos' clothing himself with flesh, uh, assuming a human body as his own. Uh, sometimes they thought that Christ's flesh was deified in virtue of its union with the Logos. Now, by contrast, the proponents of a diophysite or to-nature Christology believed that the incarnation of the Logos involved not simply taking on human flesh, a human body, but a complete human nature, that is to say both a human body and a rational soul. The Logos at conception in Mary's womb was joined to a human being. and So the incarnation involved the existence of a complete human being and a complete divine being that were somehow joined together at conception in Mary's womb. Now this would seem the appropriate place to invite questions, but we're out of time. So um, hold your questions until we meet again. Um, Think about these two competing uh, theories of how the incarnation is to be conceived and ask yourself which one you think makes most sense. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we are so privileged to be able to think about the great work of the incarnation, the Lord Jesus, and how he took on human flesh for our salvation and redemption. And We pray as we study this chapter, in church history that you would help us to penetrate more deeply into the subtleties of our faith and so to be able to better understand it and defend it when called upon to do so in jesus name we pray amen the copyright
0: for the content of this recording is held by dr william lane craig for more go to
1: reasonablefaith.org